This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. This morning we'll be in Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah is a book about judgment all around and within Jerusalem and Judah. There was turmoil and rebellion and sin that brought brokenness and alienation and condemnation that deserved judgment. And so Isaiah as the prophet of God is bringing that message that God is going to judge the people of Judah and he's going to raise up the Babylonians as the source of that judgment. The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and they're going to take the captives back to Babylon where they will be captives for 70 long years. But Isaiah is also a book about deliverance because in the latter chapters of Isaiah, the prophet looks further into the future and, and he proclaims that out of the ashes of the Babylonian captivity, the nation will be restored. But in spite of that restoration, there's, there's still a problem that needs to be addressed. Before the captivity, the personal and social brokenness that pervaded everything was rooted in brokenness with their relationship with God. So even as the captives returned to Jerusalem, they still needed someone who would set things right between them and God. They needed their relationship with God restored or the brokenness of the past would just be a repeated replay further and further into the future. And so the big question that's hanging in the air as, as the nation is restored is, who is qualified to deliver the people back to a relationship with God? Who, who is qualified to set things right with God? And so Isaiah chapter 41 actually ends with with kind of a courtroom scene where God is, is the judge and, and he is asking the people of Judah. And he's saying before your captivity, when you needed things to be set right with your lives and with your society, you ignored me. And, and instead, you turned to yourselves and your idols and to worldly authorities. And how exactly did that work out? How did that turn out in the long run? Uh, not so good. And so God says, what's different now? I mean, you're coming back to Jerusalem. You're being set free from captivity. But if the brokenness is still there and you look at yourself and you look at your own ideas and your own strategies and your own idols, then, then tell me what's any different. And, and more importantly, Tell me who is worthy, who is qualified to set you right with me? And the answer is silence. 
There's no one who's qualified to take a broken society filled with broken people and restore them back to God. And so God responds with grace and he says, I have a plan and that plan is that I'm gonna send someone. I'm going to send my servant. I'm gonna send the servant of the Lord and he will come and he will set things right because he is uniquely qualified to do what no one else is able to do. And so we come into chapter 42 of Isaiah and God speaks to the people and he says, behold him, my servant. And he tells us why the servant of the Lord is qualified to set things right with the people and God. So in honor of Pastor Josh, if you're in Isaiah 42, would you say amen? Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people in it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So God says through Isaiah that the servant of the Lord will come and he will establish justice. The idea of justice is really simply the application or the outworking of righteousness. So he's saying the servant of the Lord will come and he will establish things according to the right standard of God. In other words, the servant of the Lord is one who will make things the way that they ought to be. He will come and he will set things right. Now, Matthew chapter 12 makes it clear that this promise was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the servant of the Lord who through his death and resurrection sets things right for us with God. He will set things right forever one day in the new heavens and the new earth. But even now, today, in this place, the Lord Jesus is at work bringing forgiveness and restoration and transformation for any individual who by faith will trust in him. As was true in Isaiah's day, so too we live broken lives in a broken world that traces its root back to a broken relationship with God. Everything that we need is found in God. And if that relationship is broken, then how do we gain access? God says everything begins with getting right with God. And if that relationship is to be set right, then behold him, the servant of the Lord.
And so our text is really giving us some reasons why Jesus, when he comes from Isaiah's perspective, as he has come from our perspective, how Jesus is uniquely qualified to represent us before God and to set things right. So God says, behold, in verse one, his calling. And Jesus is the worthy savior because he is God's choice. In fact, from all eternity, the son is called and elected and appointed to carry out the plan of God to save sinners. We know John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We know Galatians 4, 4, where Paul says in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born under the woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. The one true God from all eternity, out of perfect love, has chosen Jesus to be the savior. No one else in the history of humanity can make that claim. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is called by God. Several years ago, I, I ran into an old friend and on that occasion, I found out that he had gotten in trouble with the law and um, not a serious crime, but the ramifications of, of what he had done posed a problem for his work. And because of what he had done, there was the potential that he would lose his job. And that had caused a lot of strain, obviously, in his life and in his relationships. And he was pouring out his heart to me about this hardship. And I said, well, you know, dude, you, you just, you need a lawyer. And he said, well, here's the thing. I do have a lawyer. And he's a friend of the judge. And I thought, well, that's pretty good, I guess. I don't, I don't know a whole lot about the judicial system, but if we're before a human judge for breaking a human law, I, I don't know. I guess it might be a good thing to have a lawyer who's friends with the judge, but our problem is far greater than that. One day we will stand before the eternal God of the universe against whom we have rebelled We've rebelled against his right to rule. We've rebelled against his commands. And we need something more than someone who's a buddy with the local judge. And God looks at us and he says, listen, how about this? How about if I call the very son of God to represent you in that day? My servant called by God will represent you because he is chosen by God to do that very task. Now, as part of his calling, the father has not only elected Jesus to serve, but notice in verse one, he's also empowered Jesus to serve. He says, I will uphold him. The word that God uses, uphold, is a word that means to grab on and support. So think about if, if you have children or grandchildren, the first time your children were learning to ride a bicycle and you've taken the training wheels off and, and they're ready to go, but they're just, they're trembling with fear. Yes, well, why, are you, why are you trembling with fear? Well, dad, because I'm afraid I'm gonna fall. And so what do we do? We, we grab hold of the back of the seat and we grab hold of their shirt and we say, I've got you. I'm not gonna let you fall. Well, that's what God is expressing. 
And he's expressing that as the father to the son. So he's pointing, as it were, at Jesus, and he's saying, he is my choice. No power can overcome him. He will succeed in everything that he sets out to do. He will accomplish the task that is set before him. As Pastor Josh said last week from Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is the indestructible bridge. Now to ensure that success, the Father says, I will put my spirit upon him, which tells us that Jesus was equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit with everything necessary to finish his task successfully. So, so today we can declare with, with great confidence that Jesus is qualified to set things right because he is the Son of God, elected by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we have a, a beautiful picture here, do we not, of the triune God moving in history to secure our salvation. Here is the Father who has chosen to save sinners, who has ordained the means by which that salvation is accomplished and who has sent his beloved son to secure that salvation by setting us right with himself. Here we have the, the Holy Spirit who is sent forth from the Father to equip and empower the son to guarantee his success in fulfilling God's will. And here we have the son who faithfully takes upon himself flesh and becomes a man. And as a man, he humbly submits himself to the will of God, going to the cross, whereas the uniquely qualified God-man, he pays the price for our sin. No wonder the songwriter said, and when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. Listen, someone is gonna stand before God on our behalf. Someone is gonna decide your case and my case. God says, here's my choice. Behold him, the Lord Jesus sent by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the one appointed and anointed, the one called by God. God says, behold my servant. In verses two through four, God says he's uniquely qualified because of his character. One of my favorite verses from the words of Jesus is Matthew 28 or Matthew 11, 28 through 30, when Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. I think we have a a glorious portrait in these verses of that same character of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, notice in verse two that his character is marked by humility. Jesus was not screaming in the streets. He was not violently demanding his way. Jesus wasn't trumpeting his presence throughout Galilee. He wasn't seeking his own glory. In fact, Jesus said in, in John 7, 18, that his true desire was to bring glory to the one who had sent him. His entire life was never a, a prideful attempt at self-exaltation, but was rooted in the humility of his self-sacrificing mission to bring sinners to God. Jesus was born in a stable to a peasant girl 
Jesus was raised in a backwater town known for nothing. Jesus was an itinerant preacher traveling through the unimportant Roman-occupied province of Galilee, far removed from the centers of power and the people of influence. He was followed by a ragtag group of tradesmen and sinners. He stood silently before Pilate as a sheep being led to a slaughter and was sentenced and condemned to die as a common criminal on a Roman cross. After his death, which, which was the most monumental death in all of history for most people, life quickly returned back to normal. One less rabble rouser was dead, despised and rejected of man. Jesus' joy was not found in self-exaltation, self but in humble service. The writer of Hebrews in, in Hebrews 12, 2 says that we look unto Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus' joy was in obeying the Father's will. His joy was, was in accomplishing redemption and bringing the lost sheep home and rescuing those who are guilty before God. This, this self-effacing, condescending humility is even more staggering when we consider who Jesus is, that he is the eternal, infinite, immutable Son of God, co-equal with the Father, reigning eternally in the majestic, inapproachable light of his own glory, who willingly and faithfully came to save. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. He's marked by humility. In verse 3, we see that he's also marked by grace. God gives two analogies to emphasize the gracious character of the servant of the Lord. The first is a, a bruised reed. He says a bruised reed, he will, he will not break. Uh, reeds were super plentiful in, in the ancient world, and because of that, they were exceedingly cheap. And reeds were used for a lot of different things, but primarily they were used as an instrument of, of writing. Eventually, when ink and parchment was developed, reeds were used to transfer ink to parchment. But even before that process came to be, People wrote on clay tablets and they would wetten the clay so that it was soft and they would take a reed that had been sharpened to a point and etch into the clay and let it dry and they would have a, a tablet of, of what they wanted to communicate. So a reed was something that was a, a stylus or a pen, but it was significantly worthless in and of itself. And so if, you have, if you're writing with a reed and the point breaks or you're writing with a reed and it gets bent, Nobody in their right mind is going to take the time to resharpen a reed or to try to repair a broken reed. Reeds are everywhere. So if a reed gets bruised, you just cast it out and you get another one. My dad worked in the office supply business and for most of his adult life. And so, you know, we knew all about ink pens. We had all kinds of pens, fountain pens rich, expensive pens that were metal, clickable pens, capable pens, twisting pens, multicolored pens, ballpoint pens, rolling pens, every kind of pen you can imagine. 
Do you know the most popular pen in America then and now is the old Bic stick pen. They were worth about five cents when I was a kid. Now I think they're 10 or 11 cents. You, you buy them by the dozen or you buy them by a box of 60 and, and they're essentially worthless when they break. Nobody ever came into my dad's store and said, hey, listen, I, I've got this big stick pen. Is there, is there some way you can inject some more ink into that? And nobody ever came in and said, We've, I, I broke my pen. Could, could you maybe put this on a vise and sand it up and, and glue it back together? No, if a big pen runs out of ink or if it breaks, you just store it in the trash can and you get another one. Nobody takes the time to care about a bruised reed. You trash it. It's worthless. And he says a faintly burning wick he will not cast out. Really a, a better translation of that is a smoldering wick because the picture here is you, you have a, a clay vase that's filled with oil, a lamp, and that wick is burning the oil, but when the oil runs out, what happens? Just the wick begins to burn and it produces a thick black smoke. So a lamp that's supposed to be producing light, instead is filling your house with thick black smoke so you can't see. A smoldering lamp is actually worse than worthless because it's doing the very opposite of what it's designed to do. And so if your wick is smoldering, you grab that lamp and as quickly as you can, you cast it out of the house. God says, my servant, will not cast out the faintly burning wick. That which is worthless, that which is worse than worthless, we take it and we cast it away. We trash it. Of course, this is not about reeds and pens and lamps, is it? This is about lives. This is about people who are broken and ruined by sin. Who will set things right for the broken? Who will advocate for a sin-sick soul? Who will take us in our filth and cleanse us? Who will give grace to transform the condemned? Who will represent the worthless? Jesus will. Jesus will. Jesus manifested this grace in John chapter eight. The story is recorded for us of a woman who was taken in adultery and some religious leaders had caught her in the act and had dragged her away from the house and had taken her into the street and cast her down in front of Jesus. And, and they said to Jesus, Rabbi, the law says that this woman is to be stoned to death. She's worthless in the eyes of society. She's in fact worse than worthless because she is taking other people into sin with her should we stone her to death. Jesus said, listen, the one who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And the accusers began to drift away slowly but surely until no one was left. But Jesus 
and this adulterous woman. And Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Jesus doesn't grab her and cast her out. Jesus loved her and forgave her and restored her. And that's what Jesus does because that's who Jesus is. He dined with the sinners. He touched the lepers. He forgave the prostitutes. He freed the demoniacs. He embraced the refuse and the rejected and the unloved of society with a matchless grace because he is a gracious savior. He's marked by humility and he's marked by grace. Verse four tells us that he's marked by faithfulness. God says he will not faint. That is, he will not be a coward. He will not back away from the task. He will not be shattered by the reality of what he has to do. Jesus faced the sorrow of societal rejection and false accusation and religious ridicule. Jesus felt the terror of a physical pain of a beating that was so horrific that it left him looking as something less than human. He felt the pain of a crucifixion, an intense pain, so dreadful that they invented a new word to describe it, excruciating, which means out of the cross. Jesus knew the agony of bearing the world's sin and facing the wrath of God. And he drank the cup of God's faithful, of God's wrath down to the bitter dregs. And when he cried, it is finished. The work was done. The price was paid and the curse was broken. And God the Father who sent the Son has honored the Son's humility and grace and faithfulness. And through the resurrection and ascension and exaltation has given Jesus the highest place and the highest name, thus proclaiming this humble and meek and lowly Jesus is Lord. That's why he's qualified. He's qualified to represent us before God because of his character. And we see in verse six, the third reason he's qualified because of his covenant. God says, I will give you as a covenant. Now listen, Jesus is calling and his character find their fulfillment in this. Jesus was called to save, so he came to save. Jesus has gracious and faithful characteristics that leads him to want to save. But his covenant tells us that he actually does save. Jesus did for us what no one else could do. How does he save? How does he actually set us right? Well, he made a covenant. Jesus said, this is the covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. 
You see, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, on the cross, he made a covenant with God the Father. And there God took our sin, and as our substitute, as our representative, our sin was placed upon Jesus Christ, and Jesus bore the penalty for our sin. So when, when we are in Christ, when we by faith trust Christ, the Bible describes us as being in Christ. When we by faith trust Christ and we are in Christ, the benefits that have been acquired by Jesus Christ as the covenant maker with the Father are applied to us. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross made a covenant that purchased for us salvation. He has done what we could never do for ourselves. And God says he will open our eyes. He will give us light. He will set us free through his covenantal sacrifice for us. Jesus Christ has not merely made it possible for us to save ourselves. Jesus Christ has actually secured our salvation. He has done 100% of everything that is necessary for us to be right with God. He provides everything that is needed for us to be right with God. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. In Christ, death is defeated. In Christ, we are granted righteousness that will stand in the day of judgment. In Christ, because of his covenant, we are set right with God. Through Jesus, we are adopted as his own. Jesus has been successful where everyone else failed. And that is why he's qualified. That's why he is worthy to represent us before the throne of God. God says, behold him. In his calling and in his character and in his covenant, he is like no other. And he alone is able to set things right. Now, I don't know about the scope of your life. I don't know where you've been or where you're going. I don't know the sorrows you've endured or the difficulties that you faced. I don't know about this week, struggles that you've had with sin or tension that you've had at work or at home, discouragement that you're facing maybe in your Christian life. I don't even know where everybody is this morning. Maybe you woke up with a headache and burned your breakfast and you didn't really want to come. But you felt some family or societal pressure to show up at church and so here you are. And maybe even right now you're thinking, what exactly is the point of this? What are we doing in this place? Maybe you're a believer and you come to church every week with great expectation, but maybe you've just kind of lost sight of what life's really all about. Maybe you're burdened by the reality of constant failure. Maybe you're haunted by an unknown past. 
Maybe you're just questioning and wondering if, if God really still loves me. Maybe you just wandered in here today and you're wondering, is there something here for me? And you're thinking, what exactly are all these people here for? Listen, whatever the reason that you're here, you've come into a room full of people just like you. And maybe some of us are better at hiding it than others. But deep down, every one of us knows our issues are not about headaches and burned toast and broken toys. All of us know that deep down, without God's grace, because of our sin, we're broken and alienated and condemned people who need someone to set us right with God and with others and even with ourselves. Just like the captives returning from Babylon, we need someone who will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We need someone who will take us in and never cast us away. We need someone besides ourselves. We need someone who's actually qualified to save us. We need Jesus. And that's why we're here. We've come to behold him. We've come to behold Jesus. Because when we focus, when we draw near, when we behold Jesus, we're, we're reminded that our salvation is, is about him. It's not about us. It's about what he's done. It's not about what, what we do. We are refocused on the one, the only one who is able and willing to save us to the uttermost. And we are assured that he is truly worthy. He's truly qualified to represent us and he's worthy of our trust. So if you're here today and you think you're hopelessly worthless, lost and condemned, would you behold him? If you're a believer and you're here today and your struggle with sin has left you dejected and discouraged, would you behold him? If you're a believer who Maybe you just need to be reminded of who represents you before the throne of God so you can truly rest in the Father's love. Would you behold him? Behold the servant of the Lord. He is the self-effacing, sinner-embracing, curse-erasing Savior who carried our shame, who bore our guilt, who treats us not with contempt and disdain, but sees the worthless with redeeming eyes and touches the broken with healing hands and embraces the alienated with loving arms and who reaches the condemned with a compassionate heart. And he will not turn us away and he will not let us go. Behold the servant of the Lord. Would you ask your faith today to look 
and know that the Father looks upon you with immeasurable love and unfathomable grace. And because of that love and grace, he has appointed his own son who has unmatched qualifications to represent you. Would you ask your faith to listen and to hear the voice of God as he says, you sit still and behold him, my servant, Jesus, who is qualified because of his calling and his character and his covenant and watch him as he rises to your defense with his resurrection and his atoning death and his exaltation and his righteousness and he sets things right. Have you done that today? Has there been a time in your life where you realized, you know what? The same old movie's just gonna replay because I can trace it back to the reality that my relationship with God is broken. Can I tell you today, it is the servant of the Lord, Jesus, who alone can set things right. In just a moment, we're gonna pray. And after we pray, we're gonna sing. And as we sing, there'll be counselors here at the front. And if you have a, a need in your life for them to pray with you or to pray over you, invite you to come. Most importantly, if you know today that you are alienated from God and you want to know him, Jesus invites you to come to him. And he says, if, if you come to him, he will not drive you away. And there are counselors who will be here, men and women who can help you. And you can go away from this place today in a right relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. As we sing, we would invite you to come. I think most of you here today are believers. And as we sing, I wonder if, would you just really set your heart upon Jesus and take these moments to ask God to give you rest in your soul, not because of you, but because of the unique qualifications of the one who represents you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just sing and give worship to the one who is uniquely qualified today as we close our service. Let's pray together. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.